We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I'm Suba Barry, and I am the president of Working Mother Media. I'm married to Jim for 33 years, and I have two children and a trifecta of Yorkies. I'm a very successful wealth advisor. I've made a lot of money for myself and my clients. I run a successful branch office, and yet money isn't the only way you keep count. And when I looked around myself, I found that I hadn't done enough to give back. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Suba Berry is president of Working Mother Media. She discusses how she's using her platform to advance women. So you grew up in India, and you were set to have an arranged marriage. How did you break it off? I was determined that I wanted to come to the U.S. to get an advanced degree. And in my culture, a girl didn't leave her parents' home without being married. So they promised me that they would find a bridegroom for me in the United States and make an arranged marriage. And they would make sure that he would be willing to educate me. Uh, But I had other plans. And uh, even though I was... uh, Uh, engaged to be married about a month and a half before the wedding. I called the young man and he probably actually uh, was delighted that he didn't end up marrying somebody like me. But I told him that I had no desire to be married and I was actually doing this just so I could come to the U.S. and go to school there and that he deserved somebody better and somebody that he was marrying him because she wanted to be married to him. And uh, I said, I can break off the marriage or you can. Um, I said, you tell me which one you would prefer. Uh, And if you feel like you need to tar and feather me, be my guest. But he didn't. He was very gracious. He just said that, you know, he had thought about it and he wanted to really marry somebody that was a bit more docile than me. So how did you cope with some of the relatives who were probably looking down on you? I think you had mentioned some of your uncles weren't exactly thrilled that you made this decision. Well, I had two uncles who didn't speak to me for a couple of years. And it was very, it was a huge embarrassment for my family. My parents were, uh, you know, they were very, very sad. And they, um, while they wanted to support me, I'm sure, uh, they were also really upset at me for having done this because I didn't ask their permission before I made that call. I did that on my own. Um, But I had also taken my GMATs. I had secured admission to several universities in the U.S. And one of those universities, Rice University, had actually given me a full scholarship. So I was essentially able to tuck away a few hundred dollars in my wallet and make my way to the United States. And the bottom line was that even if they had said no, I would have found a way to come here anyway. So what's your advice for women who want to go against cultural norms? That's such an interesting question. I would say to you, you have to consider the aftermath of it. And I I believe that if I had been older and had the wisdom I have now, I'm not sure I would have been ready to rail against my family to do that because essentially I was willing to part ways with them to come here. And I think that if I look back on it, um, I probably should have tried to bring them into it, convince them about the fact that 
you know, I really didn't want to do this. And it, it, it's a, it takes a combination of courage, but also humility. And I think what I had was I had in droves, I had courage. But I'm not sure I had the humility to recognize that in the long run, you get further by bringing people along with you. I feel like if you want to go quickly, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. I could see that with, you know, business settings, but in terms of family settings, when ideas and culture so ingrained, I I just wonder what you would say, what you would have said to them that that would actually have changed their mind. What I did ultimately say to them when I came to this country and I met my husband, I met him on the first day of school. I know that's a story all its own. But when when, uh, Jim asked my father um, to marry me and my father essentially said to him, I have to go back and check with the elders in the family before I can give you the approval because my father was not the oldest male in the family. My grandfather was still alive and he needed to get my grandfather's permission before he could say, okay, that's the tradition. And Jim often asks me what would have happened if he had come back and said no. And I said, I would not have married you, but I would not have married anybody else either. My family loved me and trusted me enough uh, to, to not want me to be unhappy. So uh, that's what I had said to them. I had said to them that I want you to know that if you will not give your approval for me to marry Jim, then uh, I'm not going to get married to anybody else. And if you're okay with that, I'm going to be okay with that. You spent years in the wealth management industry. What do you say to people who still don't think women should be in that field? I am appalled because I really believe that women are innately uh, almost naturals at managing money and wealth. So, for example, I grew up uh, in in households, and I think the same was the case with my grandparents, where the husband was the wage earner. They would come and they would give the money, the paycheck, uh, and in those days it was usually in cash, to the wife, and she would give him a little stipend, and then she budgeted everything else. She knew how much had to be put away to save for a daughter's wedding. She knew how much had to be spent on, you know, groceries and the likes. She set money aside for special occasions. So it was the the mother, the, the wife in the family that actually managed the money in most cases. And so I very often think of ours as a culture where the women made all the decisions, but they let the men think they were making them. So fast forward here, and as a wealth advisor, I was always surprised when it was essentially the men who would come, and even when they did bring their wives to their uh, meetings to discuss their finances, the wives always took a back seat. It was always the men uh, who who led the conversations. And I made it uh, my business, at least with my book of clients, to include and bring the wives in into the conversation. Uh, It would start with something as simple as, uh, well, do you know how to read the account statement? Uh, and they would say, well, no, he he handles it. I'm sure he can do a good job with it. And I said, I'm sure he can. But guess what? If you were able to take a look at it and if you understood it well, there would be one less thing that he would have to do. Um, almost making it something where she was actually helping him uh, and, and easing his burden. And they would say, well, I don't understand this very much. I don't. I said, well, it's firstly like balancing a checkbook. And I'm going to teach you how to do that, except this one is your checkbook and 
your investment account combined into one. Well, I really don't understand that much about stocks and bonds, she would say. And I would say to her, well, you know, there are lots of products you buy for the home, right? Um, And you buy for your children, right? She would say, yes. I said, why don't you just take the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and look at the headlines? And if you come across a a name of a company that you recognize, uh, then, then read the article. You know, if it's about Nike and you were, you're buying Nike shoes for your children, read the article about Nike. And the 10th time you do something like that, you're going to start to understand. And when you have doubts, just pick up the phone and call me and I'll help you understand what that article is actually saying. And I found them to be thoughtful. I found them to be so smart about it. I found them uh, to be very smart risk takers when they ultimately became responsible for managing the family uh, investment portfolio. And most of the time, the guys were delighted to actually have one less thing that they had to monitor and manage every month. We have several women who in India who are entrepreneurs that listen to our podcast. And as a financial advisor, you have to be very entrepreneurial. So I'm just wondering from your years in that career, what's the best entrepreneurship advice you would give to women? Taking and weighing each opportunity uh, on its own merits. Uh, Yes, you have a series of life experiences that you bring to the table in terms of your decision-making process, but you also need to take each opportunity in its own merit as opposed to, well, the last time I did something with this kind of a product or this kind of a market, it didn't pan out, didn't do well, so I better shy away from it. Starting to be able to give each one a fresh look, a fresh set of eyes is really a smart way to do it. And I would also say to you, don't be afraid of new things, new products, new services, new ways of doing things. All of those, in my opinion, can set you apart. And you switched from wealth management into diversity in that field. What advice would you give women who want to do career switch? The first piece of advice I'd give somebody uh, as they progress in their career is to constantly pay attention to how interested, excited, and enthused they are about what they do. Because usually the first indication that you probably should start to think about something different in your career actually comes from a waning interest in what you're doing. When you can't wake up every morning thinking, wow, I think I'm going to get to do this today, or this is so exciting. When you when you lose interest, that's probably a good time to start thinking about what it is about your job that you're bored with and what else you'd like to be doing. So that's one. The second piece is, um, you know, follow your, your heart. And, and in my particular case, um, I am a six-time cancer survivor, and my transition from wealth management uh, to the uh, multicultural business development unit I built came about uh, when I remember uh, being in the hospital and being diagnosed with stage 3B Hodgkin's lymphoma. And on that moment, at that point in time, uh, every penny I had ever made and every dollar I would ever make uh, would not have bought me one more day of life. Puts things in perspective. And what I thought to myself was, I'm a very successful wealth advisor. I've made a lot of money for myself and my clients. I run a successful branch office. Uh, and, And yet, money isn't the only way you keep count. And when I looked around myself, I found that I hadn't done enough to give back. And one of the most obvious things that struck me was the fact that as an Indian woman, there were 
literally nobody else that looked like me in my company. And I was wondering why that had never struck me right between the eyes. It should have. I should have said, why aren't you hiring other people who look like me? I've been so successful for you. Out of 16,000 advisors, I was one of the top 100. I spoke at uh, uh, at events and, and uh, seminars, etc., for my company, and, and they held me in high regard, and yet I had never bothered to really say to them, why aren't you hiring more people like me? And when I did, the answer shocked me, and they essentially said, oh, my God, we took a risk with you. You've paid off, but we're not pushing our luck. And so they translated my entire success in my career to some being lucky. And it was far from being lucky. And so I decided that a good way to show them how much money there was in these communities was to really build a multicultural business development unit and show them how much money there was in the South Asian, Hispanic, African-American, gays and lesbian, community of women, um, Native Americans, people with disabilities. These are all communities that are underserved enormously as it related to wealth management needs. So um, so that's sort of the start of why I went to this uh, new, new career focusing on, not initially on diversity and inclusion, but focusing on business development in diverse and multicultural communities. You had said that you don't like to focus on why me, that whole thing, even though you're a six-time cancer survivor. So can you explain what you mean by that? That's such an interesting question. Um, thinking about... Um, the fact that you have cancer, till that moment that you get that diagnosis, um, we all live almost invincible lives. We wake up every morning and the first thing that crosses your head isn't, oh, as I'm stepping off the curb, this big bus is going to come and knock me over. You don't. You walk around with this magic amulet around your arm and and lead a charmed life in many ways. You know, you, you uh, and, and for all of the things that go wrong in our lives, there are so many more that go right every minute. So many more disasters that are evaded and avoided. So when I first got the diagnosis of cancer, it, it, it just really knocked me uh, to the side because all of a sudden that magic amulet had, had worn off or broken off and, and you know, you realize that you are mortal and bad things can happen and sometimes those bad things are, uh, you know, may even be irreversible as is in the case of some of the people who get some very rare cancers. So instead of going with the why me, the actual question we should be asking ourselves is why not me? Um, and, and when you go through a cancer diagnosis and the treatments and you come out of it, all you're left with is you're filled with gratitude. You're filled with gratitude with all the people who help you at home and at work. You're filled with gratitude at your doctors and nurses and scientists and, you know, everybody around you. The world is a kinder, gentler, amazing place when you're going through life-threatening illness like that. And if you just pause not to focus on you, but to focus on all this unbelievable love that is sent to you, all you're left with is a whole sense of gratitude. And I I can now say it. Thank God for my cancer. I'm a better person for it. I live life with more acceptance and gratitude. And uh, I never take my next breath for granted. Coming up, Suba Berry discusses how women can unite to create change. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. 
Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. More and more companies have the diversity initiatives. But you look around and sometimes it doesn't seem like anything's really changing all that much. What do you think of that? Well, the reality is, look, how many uh, hundreds of years has it taken for us to get here? Thousands of years has it taken for us to get here, to have a... um, Society where men have taken the lead roles in most of the things that get done. Uh, And even when you've had a more matriarchal society uh, like uh, some of the Native American tribes had, we found a way of subsuming them. Uh, So the reality is that's been the dominant one. So this change to acknowledge the fact that uh, a balance is what is better for our world uh, is is something that will take time. It's not going to happen. It's not a switch we get to turn off and on. Um, so I'm, not, I'm hoping it just won't take hundreds and thousands of years to get there, even though if you look at the pace of change and you look at when we will have gender equality in our world, and they're talking about, you know, 114 years and 207 years and so on. And so it's, it's disappointing and it's disheartening. But on the other hand, if we don't keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep walking, fa- you know, uh, out, uh, we'll ne- we know we'll never get there. So I would say to you that uh, increasingly the business case for diversity is been is being made and has been made. So you now have about ten years of data showing companies that had greater diversity and showing their business results and their stock price results and the like. And I believe that that data absolutely is when you didn't have that data proving that these companies were outperforming. When you didn't have the data that showed that not only the profitability, but the you know return to shareholders was better, uh, you could question it because it was conjecture, I think, I feel. Um, but now there's reality around it. And more and more companies are paying attention to it. There's a fatigue, though, from what I can see on certain companies and just certain people when you hear the discussion, they're like, oh, gosh women's issues again or diversity issues again. And they're kind of, some people sound like they're getting a little fed up with it and that that's problematic. So how, how do you get over that sense of people's fatigue in certain corners? While I appreciate that they get fatigued about it, um, you know, I give the example of there are 475 male CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 25 women. In fact, there are more men named John who are CEOs than there are women CEOs. Uh, when the when the next job comes up for a CEO role, that man who is stepping into that mantle never stops to think, oh, my God, there's 475 of us and only 25 of these women So, uh, you know, I'm not going to get it because a woman's going to get it. They don't think that way. I think you need to live with an abundance mentality. An abundance mentality is one that says there is enough in this for all of us and then some. Okay. Um, I truly believe that, um, you know, being fatigued about it while um, I understand that they are, uh, I don't really give that a lot of time and energy because what I say is, look, we can get fatigued when we are at 50-50. 
since we're not at 50-50, we haven't earned the right to be fatigued. And if there was anything else other than diversity and inclusion, let's assume it was your business divisions or business groups results. And if year after year you said, well, I'm fatigued about the fact that we're not doing better, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you wouldn't keep your job. So why is it that when it comes to people and talent, all of a sudden you're allowed that notion of fatigue? So we don't we don't make that accommodation on any other front. You give me a business leader who for five years in a row doesn't see their numbers move, as is the case with multicultural women, where in corporations they're just not, the numbers are not budging. So give me five years of that on business results and you tell me who's going to keep their job. And I'm going to promise you that there won't be a one. What do you say to caregivers who want to take leave or take time to be with their families, but they're... Their company culture just, they say it's okay, but it just, they just don't feel comfortable doing it because it doesn't really seem like it would be okay and it might hurt their career. When you think about your career and balancing it against some of these other caregiving responsibilities, specifically caregiving uh, for sick parents or relatives uh, in with illnesses like Alzheimer's and others where the kind of caregiving isn't just looking in on them a couple of times a day or calling them, it actually requires some hands-on help and support. And in, in a case like that, I would say to you, hopefully you've built up some good goodwill and political capital at your place of work where they are willing to to uh, allow you to take that break. If you need to take a sabbatical, if you need to take a break, you need to be able to voice it and ask for it. So one of three things can happen. Either you're a great employee, they value you so much, they say, look, the job will be waiting for you when you come back, but please come back. Or uh, they they may say to you, look, this, this is a critical task. We may have to have somebody else fill in. We'll have a job for you, but maybe not this job. And you have to be willing to accept that also. And in the third case, where if you have a company that's so rigid that they will not give you any breaks on this, maybe you need to find a different company. Time now for your secrets. I'm Suba Barry, and my money tip is put money away for something that is meaningful to you. It adds up, and in there the money is when you need it. Be sure to check out our ebook based on the Secrets podcast. WSJ subscribers can download their copy of Resilience How 20 Ambitious Women Use Obstacles to Fuel Their Success for free on WSJ.com today. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.